The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Let's uh, come uh, to consider the things uh, that we have in this hour, and we do that against the background of the prayer that we just uh, sang together, because that uh, very appropriately focuses on what I, when in my way, want to bring uh, to your attention in this session. I hope that each one of you were able to pick up the single sheet outline. It's a very brief map of where we'll go. Uh, want to go in this in this session. Uh, particularly, I'm concerned to get certain scriptures, as you'll see on that sheet before you, uh, that we're going to be giving uh, particular attention to. Now, I want, of course, in the two sessions that I'm able to have with you tonight and then tomorrow morning, uh, to be encouraging to you as well as instructive but just because of that, I think it's necessary as we begin tonight that I start on a negative note and, in fact, a sobering note. Consider this statistic. According to the latest national survey by the Pew Forum on Religion and Public Life, this is for the full year 2008, among those identified among those interviewed who identify themselves as evangelical Protestants, evangelical Protestants, nearly half, 47%, take the view that, quote, many religions can lead to eternal life. And within this group, over 70% of those hold that even more than one non-Christian religion leads to eternal life, the choices given are Judaism, Islam, Hinduism, and even atheists. Now, knowing as we do, as we should, that, that as the truth and the life, Jesus is clear that he is the only way to the Father, the only way to the true God, Knowing that and assuming then the accuracy of these statistics, however else we're going to interpret them, they leave us with this inescapable conclusion. These evangelicals, these self-identified evangelicals, and if that means anything or is supposed to mean anything, it means that they have a high view of the Bible, they in fact disregard or ignore what the Bible is, its authority, and what it clearly teaches. In fact, they don't have a very high or accurate view of the Bible, we're bound to conclude. And I think that these statistics are definitely related to the fact that, at present, debates and disputes surround the doctrine of Scripture the basic view of what the Bible is and its authority, and particularly within evangelical and increasingly reform circles, where we would not have expected that even uh, several decades ago. 
particularly among pastors and scholars, there is this controversy about what the Bible is and its authority. Now, we need to be clear what's at stake here, and that is the gospel. Nothing less than the gospel itself. At the heart of the growing evangelical confusion, and I don't think it's too strong to say turmoil, at the heart of that confusion about the Bible, nothing less than the gospel, the possession of the gospel, is in danger at issue. Now you might wonder why I would say that. How is that so? Look at it from the vantage point of faith, of your faith in Christ. A right understanding of what the Bible is, is a normal component, a natural component, we may say, of saving faith. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. And that voice for us today is the scriptures. Now it's true, a sound view of the Bible, a, a fully worked out understanding of the Bible is not essential to saving faith. It's fair to say, as sometimes pointed out, that it's not a book, not even the Bible that saves us, but it is Jesus who saves us from our sin. But where faith is uncertain about what the Bible is, you can be sure that to that extent, faith will be disturbed and impaired and uncertain in different ways. And the point that I'm wanting to bring to our focus attention here at the outset is that Scripture and the Gospel, Scripture and Jesus Christ stand or fall together. If we did not have the Scripture, we would not have a saving knowledge of Christ. And because and only as we do have the Scripture do we have that saving knowledge. Only there in Scripture do we hear the voice of our Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus. And in this connection, it's hardly an accident, looking back to the Reformation, that in its recapturing of the Gospel, sola scriptura, Scripture alone, is one of the watchwords. You see, the other solas, in particular, Christ alone, depend on that scripture alone. Sound views of what the Bible is and sound views of the gospel go together. As we said, they stand or fall together. And where unsound views of the Bible enter the church, unsound views of the gospel are bound to follow and eventual loss of the gospel will come about. So you can see the point that I'm wanting to underline at the outset here. Only as the church contends for the gospel and the things that necessarily pertain to the gospel, like scripture, only as the church contends in that way will it possess the gospel. Only as it wrestles for the truth of these things of the gospel will it retain the blessings of the gospel. And that's a wrestling, that's a contending that all of us, in one way or another, as believers in Jesus Christ, are called to. Certainly, pastors and teachers of the church, uh, above all others, 
but every believer is involved in this concern. So under the overall heading for my two sessions, Christ and the Scripture, and you can see now why I've chosen that, expressing uh, this unbreakable bond that there is between belonging to Christ and possessing Scripture, I want in this session to answer the question, what is the Bible? Now you might think in our midst that's a a rather obvious sort of question. The Bible is God's word, but let me ask this question. What is God's word? What does it mean that the Bible is God's word? What does the Bible have to teach about itself? That's the question that we want to focus on. What is sometimes referred to in other ways, terms as the self-witness of Scripture. Now, there are a number of ways we could go about this, uh, and the one that I've chosen, how I want to proceed this evening, is by using as kind of a grid or a lens uh, for looking and answering our question, I want to use the opening words of the book of Hebrews, and you can see them on uh, the sheet that you have in hand. Translation there is slightly different than the ESV. At many times and in many ways, God, who formerly spoke to our fathers by the prophets, in these last days has spoken to us by the Son. This a statement, you see it stands right here at the beginning of the book of Hebrews, is, a, is, a, is an overarching, sweeping statement. It covers everything that the writer goes on to, to say in this document. Uh, it's, you can look at it as kind of an umbrella that the, that the writer opens as he begins uh, to cover everything that's said. But as that is the case, This is a statement, this umbrella statement of Hebrews provides an overall uh, perspective, gives us a large window, a basic profile on God's revelation as a whole. Uh, To be more specific, we get an overall perspective here on the saving revelation of God as a whole. His revelation in its entirety of himself as the creator God who is the savior of his people. In other words, the point I'm wanting to uh, draw attention to here is that what is in view here is, as we often refer to it, is the special revelation of God, the redemptive revelation of God in distinction from what we sometimes call the general revelation of God, uh, the revelation that God gives of himself Uh, in the creation all around us and even in ourselves as we are image bearers. We are a revelation of God to ourselves, even though that revelation is so often suppressed in our sinfulness. Now, several things, as we look at this statement, are immediately apparent. Reduced to its most basic elements, uh, the essence of what the writer says here is God has spoken. Look at the statement. There are two clauses, verse 1, verse 2. And in both, God is the subject, and he is the subject of the verb in the past tense, spoke. God spoke. 
Now, we must not just let that go by us. That is a most amazing thing. Reality. God is not silent. God is not a hidden God, as so many think today. God is not such that somehow we have to find him for ourselves, try to discover him by our efforts and ingenuity, reason, intuition, feeling, or whatever. Uh, there is no place here, you see, as the writer expresses himself, for a do-it-yourself approach to religion or uh, spirituality, as we so often say today, pervasively, increasingly. God, who he is, what he has done, his will, what pleases him, what displeases him, is not simply something uncertain, an uncertain mystery, an unknown that we have to try to discover by ourselves individually, e each person in my own way. Yes, it's true again, God is ultimately incomprehensible. We can't know God exhaustively. We can't know God as he knows himself. But you see, we know that. We know that as we know him truly, as God is, in, is incomprehensible, he is a God who can be known, and we know this, we know him because he tells us. God can be known, and he can be known with certainty because he has revealed himself, because God has spoken. Now, if we can, as you continue to look at this statement in Hebrews 1, there's three interrelated uh, aspects uh, that I want to point up about God speaking, about his revelation. The first is this. It involves a historical process. It's taken place in history over the passing of time through a process of historical unfolding. God has revealed himself. And we don't uh, often appreciate it, perhaps, how the Christian revelation is different from the religions, uh, the revelations claimed by the other world religions. You see, God's revelation is not like the Koran, which is supposed to have been dictated to uh, Muhammad uh, in a series of night visions close to each other. Not like the Book of Mormon that is uh, comes from these. Uh, gold tablet supposedly unearthed in upper state New York. But there is in view here a God who has spoken over a long span of history. And related to that is a second point. This process, this unfolding process involves variety, diversity. That's accented by uh, the expressions right at the beginning of the statement, at many times and in various ways. And that, we may note, includes uh, multiple prophets, as the writer indicates here. And by prophets, he's, he's speaking in ways that would include other, uh, others beside prophets who would be speaking God's words, many human agents in using various ways of expression, various modes, literary genre, narrative, poetry, and so on. But as we recognize that, as we 
see the writer expressing this diversity, we are bound to say at the same time that it is always ultimately the diverse and varied speaking of the one God. The many voices are ultimately considered one voice, and that is God's voice. God is the subject of all this speaking, this varied speaking over the flow of history. It is his word. What I'm wanting to underline, you can see then, is that this unity, that there is a unity in this variety. The diversity is not somehow contradictory. It's not an unharmonious a babel of voices competing to be heard, but it's coherent, it's co concordant, it's a harmonious diversity. Again, the many voices are one voice. At the end of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul tells us, God is not a God of disorder, but of its opposite, peace. And the peace that is in view here is in the sense of what is the opposite of disorder, harmony, order. And you see, God's speech is like himself. It's coherent, unified, harmonious. And then there is a third thing to be pointed up here in uh, the statement in here, Hebrews. Last, as we're listing them here, but hardly least. That history has ended. The history of God speaking is complete. And specifically, you see how that is so. God's speaking has found its conclusion. It has reached its end point, its culmination in God's Son, in Christ. And that speech in the Son, God's revelation in Christ, the writer says, is the absolutely final word of God. It is his last day's speech, as the writer puts it, or if uh, express it in the, the uh, more technical theological term, may be helpful to some. This is a matter of God's eschatological speech, an eschatological consummate endpoint to God's speaking. It's not as one commentator uh, puts it in commenting on this uh, section of the letter, God's latest word, uh, as if it's God speaking and then tomorrow there'll be a new addition uh, coming. But it's, you see, his final, his last word as it involves uh, the apostles that he has set apart as his eye and ear witnesses uh, to bring his word to the church. What comes to mind here is, is the hymn, uh, a note in the, uh, the program sheet, familiar to all of us. You see how it goes there, how firm a foundation. The, quest, the, the statement is made, how firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. And then comes the question, the rhetorical question, what more can he say than to you he has said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. What more can he say than to you he has said? That's the writer's point here in Hebrews 1-2. Now this third factor as we've been looking at things, God's climactic speech in his 
son shows that while the writer is thinking of God's verbal revelation, his speaking uh, in the verbal sense, words in that sense, this revelation is also more than verbal revelation. The writer brings into view here what that verbal revelation of God is always focused on, and that is God's revelation of himself in what he does in his acts. Those acts of God by which he accomplishes the redemption of his people, the restoration of his creation, and that culminates in the person and work of Christ. Jesus himself, as John 1, as it's put in John 1, is God's word. Now, with these observations prompted by Hebrews, uh, that statement there at the beginning of Hebrews, uh, brings us to another uh, further question. Uh, the statement that we've been looking at at Hebrews, and some of you might have already been wondering about this or thinking about this, that has in view the history of Revelation, the actual historical process by which God has revealed himself. But what now does that have to do with the Bible? In fact, this statement has implications that fairly apply to the Bible, to both the form of the Bible and its content. Because you see, the Bible is the permanent record that God's people have of that history of revelation. And as it is a record of that history, its own production is part of the history. As a witness to God, to the history of revelation, it is itself God's word, his revelation. Its origin, its production is part of that history. Now in our statement there at Hebrews, when the writer says that God spoke through the prophets, he is thinking of what the prophets wrote as well as when they spoke. Those writings that are now contained in the Old Testament. But as we would reflect further on this, probably the most important and instructive statement in the Bible is what we find in 2 Timothy 3.16, as you have it there on the sheet before you. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now what demands our attention here is the word rendered breathed out by God, but actually it's a single word in the original Greek that can be rendered as God breathed. It's a, if you'll pardon the slightly technical language, it's a passive verbal adjective. In other words, it expresses the idea of something having been breathed out or the result of God's breath. It's a rare word. It occurs only here in the, uh, new, in, in the New Testament, in the Bible, in fact. Uh, but even though it occurs only here in this instance, its sense is clear. 
Note what it does not mean for just a moment. It does not refer, you see, to an effect of Scripture. It's not telling us here the impact that the Bible has on readers. It is not telling us, this statement is not telling us, though it's often read this way, that the Bible is an inspiring book. That may be true in other considerations, but that is not the writer's point here. And the writer is not telling us anything here either about what happened to the human writers of Scripture, how they were inspired. Rather, what this, uh, this statement is drawing our attention to, what we are informed about here, concerns the origin of the Bible, the origin of the biblical documents. They are God-breathed or God-breathed out. Now, of course, that passive does bring into view an activity. It points us to the activity of God, related particularly uh, to the activity of the Spirit of God, an activity of God breathing. And we are told here that everything that belongs to Scripture is the result, the product of this breathing activity of God's Spirit. Now, we can say further, that the sense of this word, this breathing activity, has in view particularly the breathing that is associated with speaking. And what is the result of that speaking is said to be scripture. Of the words of the Bible, as it were, are uh, the distillate of the very breath of God as he spoke. Scripture, we're being told here then, is God's word in the sense that as the biblical documents originate with him, he is responsible for both their form and their content. What they say and the words they use to say it, they are his own. Inspiration, that is the God-breathed character of scripture as it's often put, perhaps you've heard this expression, is plenary and verbal, full and verbal. It is plenary or full. That simply means that this God-breathing activity extends to the whole of the Bible, not just to certain parts, but the whole Bible. And it, in fact, extends down to the words, not just to the thoughts that the writers had, but to the way in which those thoughts are expressed. In other words, in a word, ultimately, God is truly the author of Scripture. Now, uh, to focus as we are, and as this verse teaches on the origin of the Bible in the past, I want now to emphasize is not simply to leave it there in the past as a kind of historical artifact, a kind of dead letter. The author is not speaking from the past as someone dead, like Shakespeare or some other human author from the past. The author speaking in Scripture is the living God. So now in this sense we can say scripture is not only God-breathed, but also God-breathing. Better, uh, to say that better, just as it is God-breathed, 
has been breathed out by God and remains that, it continues permanently to be God-breathing. As Paul says here, as God breathed, it is for the church today and in every time until Jesus comes, it will be proved profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. In this sense, Scripture is always not merely what God has said in the past, but what he is saying now in the effective expression of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, section 10, it's a matter always today of the Holy Spirit speaking in the scriptures. Now, as our umbrella statement in Hebrews reminds us, a God's speech, his self-revelation, utilizes human beings, uh, their speaking and writing. We should not hesitate uh, to say, uh, so far as the Bible is concerned, uh, the biblical writers are genuine authors. Moses, Isaiah, Paul, Peter. And this raises the question, how in Scripture do divine and human authorship relate? How in the origin of the Bible does the activity of God as its author function together with the activity of the various human authors? This is a question that's occupied the church almost from the beginning, but especially in the last several centuries, uh, that question has been agitated as there's been increasing awareness of the unfolding history of Revelation, Revelation as a historical process, as we've been pointing out, and that's drawn attention to the role of the human writers as genuine authors in the history of Revelation. Now, this is surely a legitimate question. How do we understand the activity of the human authors in the production of Scripture? It's one that the Bible itself poses for us, as we'll see. But too often, the result has been an undue focus on the humanness of the Bible, a preoccupation with the historical circumstances and then the limitations of the human authors and what they wrote so that God, as the author, the primary author, tends to become, to fade into the background, to become eclipsed. And I think this is at the root of the increasing problems that have emerged in evangelical biblical scholarship in recent decades. Attention, giving attention to the undeniable human historical origins of the biblical documents has happened in such a way that their divine authorship, even where lip service is paid to it, is obscured, becomes in effect non-functional. Now this question that we're touching on as we're able to hear for a few moments, the relationship of divine and human authorship, it's a complex one. It involves mystery, it has aspects of, that are difficult, although we shouldn't uh, either exaggerate those difficulties. Also, let's, uh, let's look at it this way. The human authors are instruments used by God as the primary author. I express it that way in terms of the idea of the human authors as instruments because 
Look at our Hebrew statement again. That's the way the writer expresses himself there. God, in speaking to the fathers, did so by or through the prophets. And what is said there about the prophets applies to the whole of Scripture, the whole of the Old Testament, as the writer would have it in view here. Now, how the writer would have us understand the activity of the human writers uh, can be seen from uh, a couple of examples. Uh, In chapter 4 of Hebrews, the writer quotes Psalm 95, and in verse 7 of chapter 4, quoting Psalm 95, he says, it is what God is saying through David. But now go back to chapter 3, verse 7, the same quoted material, and now it's simply what the Holy Spirit says. In other words, as you compare these two verses, uh, we can put it this way. The Holy Spirit trumps David in the sense that what David says in Psalm 95 is more finally, is more ultimately and finally what the Holy Spirit says. Now, I think we can say that the most instructive single passage in Scripture on the question that we're uh, raising here, the relationship between divine and human authorship, is in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. There, uh, again, on the sheet before you. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now here in the context, Peter's looking at Old Testament prophecy. But what he has to say applies fairly to the entire Old Testament, not just to the prophet section as distinct from others. And by extension, it would apply to anything that is scripture as he is speaking of it here. If we had the time, we could go about establishing that. Now, as we look at the statement, notice, first of all, what Peter says, Scripture is not. What Scripture is not. That's in verses 20 and the beginning of verse 21. In verse 20, he says that Scripture is not of one's own interpretation. And by that he means to say that the, that Scripture is not the result of someone's efforts to make sense of reality. It's not a matter, Scripture is not a matter of human searching after religious truth or unraveling the mysteries of life. He's saying that scripture is not the prophet's own religious insight or spiritual experience. And as he says then at the beginning of verse 21, no prophecy was produced or came about by the will of man. Now notice what happens in that statement there. Look carefully at the beginning of verse 21. Here the origin of scripture is brought into view And it is specifically denied 
that the Bible owes its origin to human initiative, not even in response to a divine encounter. Well, if that is what Scripture is not according to Peter, what is Scripture? Well, we see that in the latter part of verse 20. First, he says, it is from God. From God. The source of Scripture is God. And particularly in the context, you see, by contrast, what the writer is saying when he says that Scripture is from God is that it originates with his, God's will. God's will, not human will, initiates and is decisive and controlling in the origin of Scripture. And you can see how Peter's from God is very close to Paul's breathed out by God in 2 Timothy 3.16. But there's more here. We're told here something about how Scripture is from God. Peter puts it this way. Scripture came as men spoke, as they were carried. See, there's a passive idea coming in. Carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, what is noteworthy here is that this is the one place in Scripture where this verb, uh, to bear something or to carry it, is used to describe the activity of the Holy Spirit. So as it's used here in this context, it's not simply another way of saying that the writers were led by the Spirit, which is the privilege of all believers. Paul in Romans 12, 13, as many as are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. But Paul, you see, but what Peter is saying here uh, is a goes beyond that idea of leading, the leading of the Spirit. It's a stronger idea. Uh, what is brought into view here, so far as the origin of Scripture, the, the origin of Scripture, the production of Scripture, is the destination. And it's not simply that the writers were, as it were, led by the hand toward that goal, but they are picked up and carried toward that goal, that destination of Scripture. So we may say they were active, the human writers, in what they did, what they, uh, the instruments of revelation, what they spoke and wrote, as they were ultimately passive in what they did or receptive in what they did. I'm just trying to underscore here uh, the force again of verse 20. No prophecy, no scripture was ever produced by the will of man. Now this is not to say that what they wrote or spoke uh, was against their wills or without their wills, as if they were sitting around unconscious as it were. They were very actively engaged. But what Peter wants us to understand here is that Ultimately considered, their human wills do not count or come into consideration in the giving of God's word. They are, and to use the, uh, the distinction that has uh, functioned in the church for several centuries, I've sort of alluded to it in passing, they are, as authors, secondary. God and God alone is the primary author. 
Now, if what I've been emphasizing seems to be overstating, uh, I put it just that way, not only because of what Peter has to say, but of what the way Paul expresses himself in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, which you have also there on the sheet before you. Here Paul says, When you receive the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it is really or truly the word of God. Here we can say the Apostle Paul is involved in, in some overstatement to make a crucial point. You see, he's commending the Thessalonians for the way his preaching and teaching, whether it was spoken or written, uh, he's commending them for the way in which that was re they received that from him. And he says that they received it not as the word of men. Though you see, it was obviously his. It bore all the marks of his personality. Anybody, you just pick up a letter of Paul and read it, and you can see his, his personality coming to expression in many different ways. Uh, reflects someone living within the first century Mediterranean world, uh, having his roots in Second Temple Judaism. But Paul says, you did not receive it as that, but as what it really and truly is, the word of God. And you see, Paul is saying here that ultimately considered his word, and we may properly speak of his teaching, Pauline theology, but ultimately considered it is not his, but God's. And that's true not only for the content, but for the form, for the words. To try to drive a wedge here between, uh, as if Paul is talking about uh, some truths that of, 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 a, of a divine origin that he is expressing then in his own uh, imperfect way, in his own words, would, would intrude a, a, a disjunction into this statement that Paul would find very, very strange, at least if we take what he says here and in 2 Timothy 3.16 and other passages as face value. See, Scripture is not simply about God. It is about God, but it is about God as it is God telling us about God, about himself. Let me draw a comment for just a moment on this issue of the relationship between divine and human authors uh, on what is sometimes referred to as the incarnational analogy. It's often used to discuss this relationship between divine uh, and human in scripture. And uh, you can see the analogy, uh, if you hadn't uh, had that uh, presented to you before, uh, as Christ on the one hand has a divine nature and also a human nature, so the Bible has both a divine author and human authors. Now this is a helpful analogy. It's helpful uh, for the way it captures that bond that exists between Christ and scripture as well as the way it points to the role of both God and human authors in the origin of the Bible. 
Well, we need to keep in mind uh, that it is no more than an analogy, and we must not push it. And it certainly must not be used in a way that we would focus on the human authors in such a way uh, that the reality of divine authorship, that God is the author of Scripture, becomes eclipsed or pushed into the background. And in this regard, um, I, I point this up. This is a, uh, something that has been weighing uh, with me uh, more and more as uh, uh, I think on the current debates that are taking place. Consider this. While God has chosen human authors for producing the Bible, and we must surely take that into consideration in studying the Bible. That's not an issue here. That God has done that. But while God has done that, he does not need human authors. He does not need a human personality as the medium to reveal himself, as many are wanting to argue. And you can see uh, that illustrated as we look through the history of redemption and the history of God's revealing himself. Uh, there is, you see, the direct engraving of the Ten Commandments. There is God speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai. There's the voice that comes from heaven at the baptism of Jesus. And again, the voice of God, uh, the Father from heaven at the transfiguration. My point here is that human persons are not necessary or essential for God's self-revelation in the way that Christ's humanity his human, assuming a human nature is essential, is absolutely necessary for your and my salvation. Look at the statement in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. You see, Paul could never have said to the Thessalonians about Christ what he said about God's word that he had brought to them. He could never have said, when you receive Christ, you did not receive him as a man, but as he truly is, God, but rather he would remind them that you received him, Christ, as both God and man, God incarnate, God come in the flesh, as not only truly God, but also truly man, without confusion and without separation of his divine and human natures. I need to conclude, and I would do that simply by underscoring what I, as much as anything, been wanting to point out in this session. What we need to know, what we need to believe about Scripture, is that as the, as the record of God's finished speaking, as the writer of Hebrews 1 puts it, as the revelation in the past, it's author, God, in his entire truthfulness, is speaking today. It is today, the Bible is today, the Holy Spirit speaking in the scriptures. And it is that first and last from beginning to end. What God says in the Bible, the Holy Spirit speaking in the scripture, is not what you and I have to uncover and decide for ourselves only after we have taken into account what the human authors have written 
as that is marked by their personal limitations, uh, their bygone historical circumstances and cultural conditioning. The truth that we would have to try to sift out of all that. Rather, you see, it is just as, not in spite of or in distinction from what the human writers wrote in their full historical and cultural setting, it's just as that, that scripture is God's word and speaks today. Only as we approach scripture with that confidence, that confidence grounded in the scriptures that are God speaking, that we will continue to hear its clear central gospel message concerning Christ and concerning God's will for our lives. And only then, with that conviction that this is the Holy Spirit speaking in the scriptures, will we be able to wrestle constructively with sometimes difficult issues of meaning of scripture and how it applies to us today. I want to close with the words that I have there uh, on the sheet uh, for you to see as well. Uh, it's the words with which Herman Bobbing, the Dutch Reformed theologian of the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, closes his discussion of over a hundred pages, under pages long, on the doctrine of scripture in his Reformed dogmatics. Uh, he's making the point how very often in scripture, uh, the scriptures express themselves as if God is, is limited and ignorant and needs to discover what is uh, happening and, and, and find out uh, what uh, the truth of matters is. And he cites, uh, particularly from Genesis 11:5, uh, the account of the Tower of Babel, where the text says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Bob Inc. adds, says this then, This is said of the infinite and all-knowing God in a human way. This last comment, however, really applies to the whole Bible. It always speaks of the highest and holiest things, of eternal and invisible matters in a human way. Like Christ, it does not consider anything human alien to itself. But for that reason, it is a book for humanity and lasts till the end of the ages. It is old without ever becoming obsolete. It always remains young and fresh. It is the language of life. The word of God endures forever. And that is the basis of our confidence, our full confidence. The word of our God endures forever. <laughs>